Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Monday, August the 15th, and this is going to be episode 724 of the Survival Podcast. Since it's Monday, this is a listener feedback show. This is where you send me your emails to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with question for Jack, video for Jack, comment for Jack, something like that in the subject that will help me filter it out. And I try to get you on the air. I want to tell you guys something about this today that's important that you guys understand. Uh, generally, I get about probably 400 emails a week that actually would get put down into a subfolder. That uh, you know, I probably get a couple hundred a day, but about 400 a week uh, that don't get filtered out because they're redundant or or what have you. Then I'll get. Uh, maybe 20 that'll go down to a folder that's like the serious consideration folder. And of those, maybe 12 I'll pull out to do a show because they can only do so many. Sometimes I cram it and I do 20. Today, the serious consideration folder numbered about 50. Um, so there's just things I can't always get on the show. And I want you to understand that just because you emailed me and you didn't hear it on the show or you didn't hear it back, doesn't mean I didn't take it in. Doesn't mean I didn't think it was a great submission. Doesn't mean I don't think it was relevant. It just means that because of time considerations, I can't get it all on. That said, keep it coming. I try to get a lot of the stuff on the air. I try to get a lot of variation on the air. And the show would not be as cool as it is on Mondays if I didn't get that volume to sift through. Uh, before we go ahead and take your questions and comments, uh, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, the Berkey Guy at Directive21.com. What can you get from the Berkey Guy? I know this might be shocking, but you can actually get Berkey water filtration systems from the Berkey Guy. And he's the best place to get them from. You're going to get the best pricing you can find on Berkey stuff. You're going to get the best service you could ever get on Berkey stuff. Why? Because Jeff Gleason over there really cares about his customers, and he's really a great sponsor and a great supporter of the Survival Podcast and our community. Remember, folks, if your five survival needs, the one that you'll die the quickest without is probably water. Security's up there because it all depends on whether you need it this second or not, and it takes one second to be taken out with a lapse of security. Uh, but assuming that you can survive that, um, you can only go a couple days at best without water before you're in serious jeopardy. That means we need to make sure we always have a clean, reliable source of water available. And since it's heavy and bulky, you can only store so much of it. So having a way that you can filter your water is a great idea. Berkey filtration systems are great for filtering your water for everyday use, and they're great for long-term storage emergencies. Let's go ahead. Uh, next up today, ShelfReliance.com. Notice I said shelf, not self, but Shelf Reliance, like a shelf you put things on. Why? Because Shelf Reliance uh, creates some of the most innovative food storage solutions that I've ever seen. Racks and systems that allow you, whether you're storing big number 10 cans or just the canned food that you use every day, to eat what you store, store what you eat, and always make sure that the food you're pulling is the oldest food. And as you add food to your storage solution, 
Revolution. You're putting the newest food to the back of the line. Check out their Harvest 72 uh, food storage rack. It's their Cadillac system. It's wonderful. I own one. I, I don't know what I would do without it, honestly, with the amount of food that we store. And if you want smaller solutions, take, check out their Consolidator line of products. They're really cool. And remember, they also have the Thrive brand of long-term storable food. That food is awesome. Everything I've ever opened and eaten from Thrive is food I would be happy to eat any day, not just during an emergency. Next up, remember, connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. The best way to do that is go to the survivalpodcast.com. You'll find links to all of them there. Make sure you check out our gear shop. We have some really cool stuff. The Emberlit Stoves came back into stock, sold out again. I mean, these things are just hot, and that's not just a pun. It's true. They are hot with the audience. Uh, we have 40 more on order, and uh, I would keep an eye out there if you want to get your hands on one. I told Tiffany I don't think 40 is enough, but we're dealing with a small manufacturer, and he can only make so many at a time for us. So, um, you know, get them when you can when they're in there. The Emberlit stoves are just freaking awesome. Uh, no, actually, last but not least, if um, you want to support this show, if you listen to the show every day and you think, you know what, Jack kicks ass, he does a good job for us, uh, he works really hard, and I'd like to support what he's doing, you can do that for 20 cents an episode with the Members Support Brigade. That's what that program's for. But in addition to that, you'll get your money back, and here's how you'll get it back. Well, first of all, you're going to get over $100 worth of eBooks free. Then you're going to get discounts to 29 different vendors. Some of them are sponsors, some of them are not. But if you buy stuff in the survival List, the, the, the preparedness, the gardening, any of the stuff we talk about, if you buy stuff like that at all, you're going to get discounts that will repay your membership on top of that. You'll also get content on video by me that's available nowhere else. And uh, if you're a forum member, remember you can display that member support brigade badge in your signature line. If you are law enforcement, military, or Peace Corps active duty or prior service, email me before you join. I have a special discount on that program just for you. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Like I said, there was a lot to, to, to really pick through to get down to uh, to this, and we even have a long list today, longer than normal. But uh, I want to do some follow-up today. I mentioned that they're talking about redoing uh, the Armed Forces um, Retirement Program. And uh, I said I didn't think that they would be able to just kind of hose over the active duty. They would have to at least pay them for what they've done so far. And I'm right and I'm wrong. And I have the actual uh, plan here, what it would be. And I want you guys to listen to this. I want you to think about, uh, is this really all bad? I don't think it's all bad. Uh, I don't think it's great for a soldier, but I don't know that it's all bad for the country. And I think for soldiers that maybe go in for five years or eight years or ten years, that when they get out, at least they have something in the future. So let me explain. Let me just, I'll just read it to you. This is right out of uh, the Air Force Sergeants Association newsletter. It was sent to me by a uh, member of the audience. DOD uh, panel calls for radical retirement overhaul. A sweeping new plan to overhaul the Pentagon's retirement system would give some benefits to all troops and phase out the 20-year cliff vesting system that has defined military careers for generation. In a massive change that could affect today's troops, a plan calls for a corporate-style benefits program that would contribute money to troops' retirement savings rather than the promise of future monthly pension, according to a new proposal from the influential Pentagon Advisory Board. All troops would receive the yearly retirement contributions regardless of whether they stay for 20 years. Those contributions might amount to about 16.5% of a member's annual pay and would be deposited into a mandatory version of a thrift savings plan, the military's existing 401k-style account that now does not include government matching contributions. So 
basically what that says is that instead of having a military retirement, it's like a government pension. The government would say, okay, private, you made $10,000 this year, which would be really low, okay, even for a private's pay anymore. But let's just use $10,000 because it's a nice round number. So we're going to put $1,650 this year into your retirement savings. And it's yours, sort of, okay? All right, but let me let me go on from there. I just want to make sure you have that right. Unlike other proposals to overhaul military retirement that would grandfather current troops, the board suggests the DOD could make an immediate transition to the new system, which would affect current troops quite differently depending on their years of service. Recruits, the newest troops out of boot camp after the proposed change would have no direct incentive to stay for 20 years and would not get a fixed benefit pension. Instead, they would receive annual contributions to a thrift savings plan account and could leave service with that money at any time. Although under current rules, they can't withdraw the money until age 59 and a half without paying a penalty, except in certain specified situations. So it's almost exactly like a 401k. You can get it out early if you want to, but you're going to pay interest and penalty on it. Okay, five years of service. Troops would immediately begin accruing new benefits in the TSP program. They're ripping me off here. TSP, Thrift Savings Plan Survival Podcast. Anyway, if they remained in service until the old vesting date, 20-year mark, they would also get one-fourth of the old plan benefit, or about 12% of their pay at retirement as an annuity. If they separated, for example, after 10 years, they would walk away with no fixed pension benefit, which is exactly the same as it is now, uh, but would have a TSP account with five years of contributions. Ten years of service, troops would immediately begin accruing new benefits in the TSP account. If they remained in service for 10 years or more, they would receive half of the old planned benefit, which would be 25% of the pay. Those that don't know, you stay 25 years in the military, right now, or 20 years in the military right now. When you retire, you immediately can begin drawing your, your uh, retirement, and it equates to 50% of whatever your pay was at the point you retired. Okay? It's a pretty good retirement program, but it requires 20 years of sacrifice. Um, let me keep going. About 25% of their pay at retirement is annuity. If they separate at 15 years, they would walk away with no fixed pension, but would have a TSP account with five years of contributions. 15 years of service, troops would immediately begin under the new plan. If they remain in service for five more years, they would reserve three-fourths of the old benefit plan, or about 37.5% of their pay at retirement as an annuity. So they're actually doing exactly what I said they would do. 20 years and beyond, troops who stayed 20 years would continue to receive annual TSP contributions. So they would get their 20-year retirement in full, but they would stop accruing any additional retirement value, and they would begin contributing to the TSP. All right. So what does that mean? Is this all bad? It's not all bad. Because now a soldier that goes in for five or ten years and comes out has some, some buildup of his retirement. It doesn't say if they would allow the soldier, the airman, what have you, to contribute more money to the program. So instead of just the 16%, uh, maybe the soldier throws in another 10%. That's 26%. They come out with a pretty good nest egg after ten years for that long-term retirement. And if they wanted to, they could go ahead and take it out with interest and penalty. So all of that's okay to a degree. Here's my problem with this. This is what should be going on in a lot of city governments, county governments, and things like that right now. And when they try to do this at a city level, at a county level, at a state level, at all these worker levels, the employee unions go freaking berserk about how they're breaking their deal. I don't hear anything from SCIU or whatever, service employees, union, whatever they are, SCICU, whatever. All right, I don't hear a word about it here. They don't care if it's the soldiers getting this done. Now... Why do I think it's okay for a county, a city employee, what have you, and maybe not so much for troops? Because when you join the military for 20 years, it is not like a job. 
It is not like any other job that you could ever have. Let me, let me tell you a, a few differences. No matter what you do at your job as a county worker or a private employee for a private company or anything else, no matter what you do, unless it violates U.S. law or international law if you're overseas, there is nothing worse the employer can ever do to you other than fire you. In the military, um, you could do something that's considered a violation of an order that breaks no law other than the law you agreed to under the you know, Uniform Code of Military Justice when you joined, right? And your employer can take half your pay for a month. Your employer can reduce your rank. Your employer can confine you to quarters. Your employer can send you to jail. That's one thing, all right? Um, if you work for a county or city government and they say, we want you to go to Alaska as part of a relief effort, you can say no. It might affect your advancement, but you can say no. When you are a soldier, an airman, a marine, a sailor, you don't get to say no. You don't get to say no. And if you do try to say no, then they can put you in the quarters confinement or, you know, all right, they can do all these other things, right? When you join the military, it is not like a normal job. If you are working for any employer anywhere outside of the military, and you decide today, I have had enough. Even if you have a contract, there's always a way out of it. You can always say, I quit. If you try to quit the army, they will put you into confinement of quarters, reduce your rank, possibly send you to military jail. All right, You can't quit until the end of your term of service. So trying to say that, you know, that in any way we shouldn't give these guys a little more for what they do, right? Now, you want to fix this? Allow, so, you know, if, you, if you said, okay, well, uh, a military member can at least resign. At least has the right of resignation. Well, I, I might feel a little bit more okay with this. Right? The rest of the stuff, hey, you know, you've got to run a military like a military. You can't run it like, you know, McDonald's, right? You can't run it like a corporation. You can't run it like the county clown house, right? You've got to run it differently. Uh, but the fact that a military member can't even decide, you know what, I, I've had enough, I would like to resign my position, that's why they get something a little bit more. So the plan in itself is not terrible from a financial standpoint, but... I have some real issues with kind of reneging to our vets because of of that type of thing. Um, here's a cool one. Actually, hold on. I want to keep that till the end. Um, let's go to a, a serious question here. Uh, this one says, Hi, Jack. I was recently having a conversation with someone about the state of the U.S. economy and how it will affect us here in Canada and as other countries around the world. The person seems to feel that raising the debt ceiling is going to help the U.S., <laughs> okay, this is the point of the conversation where you should just go <laughs> white noise in your head and just let it go because that's just stupid. Um, and if the country's currency completely collapses, uh, the, the world should go to using the euro as international standard. What are your thoughts on this? This person's a moron. Those are my thoughts. Also, how would the U.S. dollar collapse affect us here in Canada and perhaps other parts of the world? I respect your opinion. I really like to hear your thoughts on these matters. Thanks for everything you do. Say, okay. Uh, let's put it this way. When Greece had major financial difficulties and began to cut its expenses by cutting retirement benefits, what happened to the United States Stock Exchange? 
that was Greece. Uh, do Greek, the Greeks buy a lot of U.S. treasuries? Oh, do they buy a lot of anybody's treasuries? Not really. Do they have a major export economy that the rest of the world depends on? No. Are they a major import economy that the rest of the world depends on? No. So if, if Greece imploding on itself, can do what it did to the global economy. What do you think the U.S. imploding on itself would do to the global economy? Uh, how are you going to just shift over to using the euro as the international currency reserve when the euro right now is tied to the dollar because the dollar is the reserve? So the reserve fails. See, this is the problem with people like like your friend. They don't. Their their ignorance is understandable because no one teaches this stuff, but they don't understand that the whole thing's a monopoly game. All the currencies are fra uh, fractional reserve currencies. All the currencies are debt. The euro is just another debt certificate. right? The Australian dollar is a debt certificate. The Canadian dollar is a debt certificate. When you hear me say all these things about the U.S. and we can never pay off our debt because it's impossible because all the money's loaned into existence and all the loan carries interest and there's always greater interest in principle than just principle, it applies to every currency in the world today. There isn't a single currency today that's not being run that way. Anywhere that I know of. If you know of a little country somewhere doing it, let me know. I'd like to know. But my understanding is that every single country, and certainly every modern country, is involved with the International Monetary Fund, and they're involved with running the same type of scam. And it is a scam on the people. It's a hidden tax on the people. That's what inflation is. So how would a U.S. global uh, economic collapse affect the rest of the world? It would drag the rest of the world into economic collapse. This is what is going to happen. So instead of worrying about what could happen, let's talk about what is going to happen. The currencies all over the world are going through the same cycle. Some nations are a little further in the curve than we are, believe it or not, and some people are a little behind us, but we're all doing the same thing. We're all heading to the cliff. And there's going to come a point where you can't keep this thing going anymore where it gets ridiculous. You can only add a zero to what's reasonable so many times. What we used to buy for a dollar became ten, then it became a hundred, then it became a thousand. Uh, I don't think there's a tolerance in this country for the $1,000 item to become a $10,000 item at this point. I don't think it can go any further. I think we get a point where we have to rebase the currency. When that happens, what they're going to do is they're going to say, Ah, you guys are right. We need to go back to gold. They're going to put gold behind the currency. The nations that will do the best in this scenario are the ones that have stockpiled the most gold. We in the United States are probably not one that was smart enough to do that because our idiots believe they can keep this thing going forever. You'll hear from one of our former idiots uh, in a bit, and you will just your jaw will drop when you hear what he says. That will be Mr. Greenspan about this very subject. But when we go back to gold, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have a whole bunch of money. Let's say you have $10,000. And they'll say your $10,000 are still good. They might they change the way the money looks, but people will accept the old money. You know, the way money looks has changed a bunch of times, even in the last 10 years. If you think about the way a $20 bill looked 10 years ago and the way it looks today, it's changed, right? Bigger bigger face on it, more counterfeit protections and things like that. So the old money just kind of gets sucked in and eventually gets replaced with the new money. But it, it's all paper anyway. So a $5 bill in the U.S., a $5 note will be a $5 note. It will just, again, now be backed by gold. And people will go, yay! Oh, not so fast. Not so fast. How much gold? And when everybody's using gold, and a $5 bill is backed by gold, and gold is based on $5,000 an ounce or $10,000 an ounce or whatever number they set to make it work, 
and it's probably somewhere between five and ten thousand dollars. How much value did that five dollar bill lose when gold right now trades for eighteen hundred dollars an ounce? That's what's going to happen. So there's your actual long term answer. Um, the next one I wanted to make sure I covered this today. This comes from Donna. Donna says necessity being the mother of invention. These folks are living in in their own, living on their own in the New Jersey woods. Notice the story comes to us from overseas, which is an indictment of how co-opted the U.S. news media is. Yeah, why isn't someone from like local New Jersey station out there covering this thing? But what we have is it looks a lot like a Hoosierville. It's actually a lot nicer than most of the Hoosiervilles from the Great Depression. Uh, let me read a little bit of it to you. In scenes reminiscent of the Great Depression, these are ramshackle homes of the desperate and destitute U.S. families who have set up their own tent city only an hour from Manhattan. More than 50 homeless people have joined the community within the New Jersey forests as the economic crisis has wrecked their American dream. And as politicians in Washington trade blows over the country's 8.8 trillion pound debt, uh, the prospect of more souls joining the ragtag group grows by the day. Building their own tarpaulin tents, Native American teepees, and makeshift balsa wood homes. Doesn't look like balsa wood to me, it looks like particle board, guys. Uh, every one of the tent city residents has lost their job. And if you look at this, actually, these people, I, I'm not going to read the rest of the article, you're going to have to go look at this today. These people aren't living that bad. I mean, for homeless, you know, not, not compared to maybe you and your house. But for somebody that's homeless, if you look at the way they're living, um, it's it's somewhat decent uh, conditions. They have a generator that runs a washing machine that the whole community shares. Um, they have grills. They are actually kind of, sort of, making it as best they can. Uh, they even have a chest freezer that I guess they use to keep food in uh, that runs off of this generator system, and they have a little like laundry uh, shack they built. You got to really look at this to appreciate how much work these people have done to shelter themselves. Do you want to know what my biggest problem with this is uh, that these people were pu pushed to this? Not so much. Um, hey, these guys are figuring out how to at least make it. Uh, I think most of them, from what I can read, are working really, really hard to try to uh, to find a job to get out of this situation. Uh, they're keeping the area relatively neat and clean. It's not all trashed up and filthy and disgusting. Uh, there, there, there's a picture where the the road is flooded in with mud, and that's that's something you know. There's just no infrastructure to handle. Um, but overall, they're clean. Uh, they're staying dry. They're probably able to keep themselves fairly warm in the winter with the use of fire, which there could be some dangers there. But overall, they're, they're surviving. Uh, and this could be what a lot of America looks like if we have the economic collapse that we were just talking about. There could be a lot more of these. My biggest concern for these people is the government trying to help them. Yes, that's, I mean, I know this sounds heartless and maybe you're thinking, oh, this is some kind of evil libertarian thing coming here that Jack's about to lay on us. No, 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 no. I don't mean like the government, it would be okay with me. These are people that they're trying so hard that these are people that should get a little bit of money to help them get back on their feet. All right? Um, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, the government's trying to help them by looking at this and going, we well, are on public land and this is kind of dangerous and we don't know what you're doing here. And coming in and wrecking their Hoosierville and plowing it to the ground, taking what little these people have away from them and saying, you know, we have to, uh, we have to move you. That's my fear. That's my biggest fear for these people right now. Honest to God, not a New Jersey winner. I think they'll sort it out. 
I think that this is a community that's working together, and I think as the people find a way to get out of there, when a, when, a, when a group leaves, like a family or an individual leaves, I think the rest of the community will be happy for them. I think these people could probably teach us a lot. I, uh, I almost feel like I need to find some way to go to this place or find one of these places somewhere else that I can get to and take a camera, a video camera, and talk to these people about what they're learning through this life experience because we may all need to know someday. But I do think that sooner or later, sooner or later, our government's going to come here and say, you guys got to go. And when the people say where, they say, they're going to tell them that we don't know where you got to go, but you can't stay here. So you got to look at this story, look at the pictures. I think you'll be blown away by it. Um, do, do stop by the show notes today, if nothing else, just to watch this uh, or just to look at this one, uh, this one uh, article. Next one comes from Roger. Roger says, on your next podcast, could you discuss the London riots? I'm going to discuss them briefly because you've heard about nothing else from the TV lately. We can discuss how they started, why they started, what's all that kind of, you know, the motivation behind them, the mind-numbing stupidity of the people that are involved. We can sit here and talk about how they're not all a bunch of angry poor people, that a lot of the people that have been arrested have been the children of quite wealthy individuals and, and the mob mentality. But you know what? None of it matters. None of it matters. Because when we have riots like this here, and we will, it won't be for the exact same reasons, and knowing the reasons won't prevent them. What we need to learn is, this is what happens. This is what goes on. And we need to learn the lessons of what happens when a society is disarmed. When you have mobs of people running around smashing, taking, stealing, beating, looting, and all this other stuff, and you have an unarmed society, they are ill-equipped to stand toe-to-toe with them. Even if you get ten neighbors together and defend your community with, with, with baseball bats and, and rakes and shovels, which in England would probably get you thrown in jail for defending yourself, um, if there's a couple hundred people even, and there's like mobs of thousands running through here right now, um, you, you can't stand up to that. You just can't. It's impossible. So what we need to learn is that we better damn well defend our right to keep and bear arms, tooth and nail, to the very end in this country. Because I'm going to tell you right now, the odds of a mob coming down my street where I live, not very good. Uh, not even really to my business. But should it happen either place, someone's going back horizontal if the order to cease and desist is not followed. I will turn people off, I think is the, the term some law enforcement officers use, if it's necessary to defend my property. Further, if it happens in my town, I will be one of the first to get together with other members of that community, arm myself and go down there and say, not here. you got to go find somewhere else to do this. The lesson we need to learn from London is to build strong community, to not be isolationist, to have a plan within our neighborhood. What would we do if this happened here? You know, how would we prevent it? The time to figure that out is not as the mob approaches and you can hear it. The one other thing I want to say about this though, these mobs and riots and stuff that you hear about once in a while where they say, look what's happening here, look what's happening there. I got news for you, buddy. I got news for anybody who thinks this is uh, really uh, engaging stuff that's unusual. This crap goes on all the time all over the world. They show you riots and mob attacks when it benefits their agenda. 
Not whenever it happens. It happens all the time. I was telling my wife this. When I was in Panama, we had riots all the time. About once a week. It was on schedule. It always started out as some kind of protest at the local university. For Panama City University or Panama University, whatever it was. And they would get about 10,000 students out there all pissed off about whatever the anger de jour was. And it would always break down into a riot. And the Panamanian police would always come in and shoot tear gas at them. President Bush uh, first came down there while I was serving. He did a thing at our airfield. Big speech. And uh, he also went down to the square where they always have these protests. And they had a riot when he went there. You never heard about this. They never told you about this. The Panamanian police fired tear gas into the crowd to disperse it. And then the wind shifted. And Barbara and, and Bush, Barbara and, uh, and George got hit with their own, with the, with the spray. They had to cut the speed short, put them onto, uh, one of the, the helicopters. And then they, you know, cleaned them up. And he came out and he gave a speech at our airfield right after that happened. Riots go on in the world somewhere almost every single day. Please understand, when the media focuses on it, it's because you can't avoid it because it's something big like London or because they want you to feel, do, or think a certain way. It's a structured message. Please understand that at all times. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not even saying that the reporting on London is inaccurate. It's not completely accurate, but basically they got the story right. There's a bunch of pissed off people smashing things and a lot of the mentality in the crowd is we're smashing it to show the, the police and the rich people that we can do what we want, as the one girl's famous quote is out there now. And uh, you know, But I'm just saying, it's not like it's the only time. It's not like there weren't riots two weeks before this started somewhere else. They show you the riots they want you to see to shape your opinion. Please, please understand that. Uh, helpful tip here from Bill. Uh, this was about the first responder podcast I did with uh, James Stein. That was, you know, all the different things that we forget in common everyday disasters like your spouse having a heart attack or a tornado or a flood or something like that. And when you're actually trying to be found by first responders, you've called 911, you're saying, hey, I need some help. And you live kind of in a rural area. It's hard to give directions to, hard to understand where you're at. Maybe you use the cell phone because you don't even have landlines where you're at. And maybe you're connected to Little Rock 911 and you're calling from Hot Springs or you're, you know, something like that, which, which has happened. And uh, James told us it happened. So, you know, we said on the show that it was to be a really great idea to have very specific, clear directions written down, maybe on your refrigerator or something, you can give them to the responder. Well, how about this from Bill? One thing that would be easy to assist first responders, first responders to find your house is to provide them a longitude and latitude. Easy to find your house. Find your house on Google Maps. Right-click on your house. A menu will be displayed. Select what's here. The lat longitude will be displayed. Write it down on a piece of paper on the fridge. They should be able to find you. So with latitude and longitude, they should be able to use GPS or whatever to look you up. Or if nothing else, a dispatcher can use that to find you on Google Maps and help the responders get to you. One of the big things to understand is at some point you may have to call 911. You may get very limited information out. The call might go down. You might be unable to continue to call. You need to get the information they need to them as quick as possible so that they can find you if you become incapable of continuing the call, folks. So that's a great tip from Bill. Latitude and longitude of your home. Uh, if you have a GPS, you can also get the GPS coordinates and provide those as well. Um, this is another question here from Ralph. Ralph says, with the price of gold about the same as platinum, what are your thoughts on buying platinum? 
Platinum's prices were made fairly constant, but gold has been rising apparently due to recent demand and financial issues. Do you think platinum will be a better long-term investment than gold? I can see at some point down the line gold's price taking a dive similar to silver's $50 price. Yeah, I see that very, very soon, by the way. Uh, your thoughts on this would be appreciated. I really like your show and your insights. I try pointing people to your site and podcast. Keep up with the good work. Here's the reality. Whenever you buy a commodity, gold, silver, platinum, ammunition, right, there's always peaks and valleys in price. And you want to buy as often as you can in the valleys and as, as seldom as you need to on the peaks. Right now, gold's in a peak. Um, I think gold has a long way to go up from here. I think with a currency rebasing, it has a massive ride to go up from here. But I think that in the short term, next three months or more, we have a gold correction coming. The stock market will rebound. It will rebound like you won't believe by the end of this year. The credit downgrade came and Helicopter Ben came out and didn't offer him QE3 and everybody was ready for the world to end. Oh my God, it's going to happen again. And Jack said, no, 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 no. The delusion will continue. This was a good time to buy stocks. And the stock market went down almost 10,000 and people went, oh, look, Jack, you're wrong. And I said, no, no, the delusion is going to continue for a while longer. And today the market's at like 11.4 as I'm recording this and it's up 100 and some odd points on the day. It will go down. It will go up. It will go down. Down, but it will end 2011 higher than we entered 2011. There's a 40-year history of the year preceding an election for the stock market to end up at the end of that year. There is not enough wrong that people are being willing to admit to right now to break the trend unless the municipal defaults come in a tidal wave, and I don't think that's this year. Everything's being done to hold it back long enough to get our current ass clown reelected. All right, that's that's the fundamental reality here. I'm very concerned of what this place is going to look like, the whole country in 2013, and I've been saying that for a long time. With that correction of stocks back up, and call it a false correction, honestly, part of the false recovery continuing. This is a we're in. This is not the double dip of the recession yet. We are still in the false recovery. As bad as it is, it ain't as bad as it's going to be. Put it to you that way. So as that happens, gold's going to correct down. When it does, if you're looking to buy gold, that's the time to buy. We get about two months from now, gold has a major price correction downward. When you see it come down and level, if you want to buy gold, buy gold then. Platinum, if you want to buy some, I'm not going to tell you not to. This is my thing, though. Um, platinum has never been used for a basing of a currency, to my knowledge, and certainly not in recent times. The two metals that get used to base a currency on are gold and silver. That's why, if you're going to hedge inflation and not just be a pure investment play, I think gold and silver is the place to be. So that's kind of my short, long answer on that one. Um, if you want to buy platinum, you can, but I'm certainly just, it's just not something that I plan on doing uh, for myself Because my concern and in, in my investing in this area is what happens when the mo next monetary change comes. That's why I'm, I'm holding these metals. One, they'll hold their value against inflation. And two, they provide insurance during a currency shift. All right, let's go ahead and take another question. This one's actually from a guy named Rich, and it's a pretty cool article in Popular Mechanics. Eight things the 2011 tornadoes taught us about surviving a long-term power outage. Five months after the deadly tornadoes in Huntsville, Alabama, which cut power to the NASA facility, an Army base and more federal offices returned there to see what lessons they could tell us from the disaster. 
Um, advice for individuals. The first impulse in a disaster is to help others, but deception can grow as the cri desperation can grow as the crisis continues. Hold on to that initial bonding feeling. Quote, all of a sudden you had to be neighbors whether you wanted to or not, end quote, said Dale Jobes, director of the Energy Group, uh, or Energy, Energy Huntsville Initiative, a public advocacy group. Quote, everybody was sharing everything they had in their freezers because food was going to go bad. It was a really neat dynamic. So number one advice and a long-term power adage, stick together as a community. Number two, seek out national chain hotels. Major cho hotel chains have better disaster plans and network of uh, helpful staff that ideally can provide supplies and support uh, from out of the disaster zone. In Huntsville, hotel chains shipped fuel for generators from out of state to keep power on, drawing flocks of people eager to get online for pa and pa or power cell phones. Quote, hotels are really prepared, end quote, says Rodney Robertson, executive director of Auburn University's Research Center. Quote, something the general population figured out is that hotels and hospitals are the best place you could go to connect to the world. Initially, even the city of Huntsville used the lobby and the embassy suites to carry out some of their communications. So if long-term power outage means a month or less, I completely agree with that. If long-term power outage means we have a grid failure due to some kind of catastrophic event, Of six months or more, stay away from hotels. All right? uh, number three, keep cash in your emergency preparedness kit. Duh. Uh, no power means no ATMs, but commerce will continue. Cash soon becomes a prized commodity. I heard numerous stories of people robbing their kids' piggy bank for money to buy groceries, Robertson said. Next one, battery or hand crank radios provide the most reliable communication. See, if you tune into the Survival Podcast, you already knew all this stuff. Information from the city about the scope of the damage was delivered every morning at 8.30 a.m., and it found an avid listenership among officials and citizens. Quote, our radio folks were absolutely amazing, end quote, Joe said. I think they worked almost 24 hours a day, and they were constantly having people call in to say, you can get gas in Athens, or there's a grocery store open with batteries or ice. I felt like we were back in the 50s or something. So everybody was helping each other with information about where to go get stuff. So instead of everybody taking everything for themselves, People were telling other people where to go to get some stuff. See, not all disasters result in the worst of society. The worst of society always pop up, but if the rest of society stands together to knock them back down, they don't get to take over. There's lessons here that you have to read a little deeper to see. Next one, advice from government. <laughs> this is actually good advice. It's hard for me to believe much good comes from any government. Uh, maintain a list of critical infrastructure. Some infrastructure is clear are, are clear priorities. Uh, oh, advice for government. Oh, that's why it's good advice. So this is it for your government officials, what they need to be prepared to do. Maintain a list of critical infrastructure. Some infrastructure are clear priorities, like hospitals and retirement homes. Other places may not be so obvious. In Huntsville, the Army's Redstone Arsenal, which like most domestic military facilities is dependent on public power, was designated as an industrial center and therefore low on the list to receive public, low on the list to receive public power. But with classified projects underway and vital repair work on tight schedules, not to mention families living on post, the base needed quicker attention. I think that's the Army's problem. 
I think the army needs to be seeing to where their priorities are, not leaving it to city government to tell them. So I think that's a failure of a military command in that particular situation, especially with some of the things that might be going on like classified projects. Next, diversify your power supply. One of the benefits of renewable energy is decreased dependence on centralized grids. For example, despite widespread storm damage, the community's northern Alabama In northern Alabama, supplied by the West Wilson Hydroelectric Dam, kept their power on using local sources of renewable energy to create redundancy as a smart way to safeguard against the unexpected. Advice for industry. Take care of emergency generators. Just having emergency generators is not enough. Quote, there was a major nationwide retailer here in Huntsville who had a generator to operate their facility in case something like this happened, and quote, Robertson said. Quote, but they never maintained it. They never got the generator working during the entire event, and quote. Also, it may be a good idea to rely not, it may not be a good idea to rely on a generator if there's no plan for replacing the fuel it consumes. Remember, without power, gas stations can't pump diesel. I, I think the better way to say that is to make sure that you have a sufficient supply of fuel for your generator to make it long enough for the generator to pay off. If you can only run it for a day, it, it's almost not worth having other than to get through basic power outages. Uh, next one, make sure sensitive locations are secure. Huntsville has a high concentration of engineering, space flight, and defense technology firms. Many of these companies make their home at the sprawling Cummings Research Park. When the power went down, emergency backup security systems turned on until the batteries wore down in a few days, leaving top-secret information and facilities basically unguarded. Emergency recovery plans at firms that have security clearances or supplies that could be targeted by looters need to prepare alternate energy supplies or energy-independent ways to safeguard their buildings. And how about this one? You know how you safeguard your buildings? With security. People. That's how. Uh, so if you, I think that anybody, that if you, and this is for your homestead, your sensitive areas, you need to have additional security measures that are not grid dependent in the first place. Just my thoughts. So I thought that was a great article. I'll link to it if you want to print it out, read it, share it, what have you. Uh, but uh, really some good stuff comes out of Popular Mechanics on Disaster Preparedness once in a while. Uh, next one here comes from Eric. Eric, the cool Eric who sends me like 15 things a day and I can only get one or two a week uh, on the show, uh, even though he digs into some of the best stuff. And this is a perfect example here. It says, Jack, in case you've not heard, got this one a million times yet, no, Eric, you're the only one that sent it to me. To actually see and hear Greenspan say that the U.S. can pay off any debt because we can print off more money, unbelievable. Notice the facial expression of the guy next to him. He really just didn't say that. Priceless. I watched it on, Meet the, on the Meet the Press site. Yes, it's real. So I'm going to play it for you right now, and then I'm going to comment on it. you got to listen to this. Now, the guy sounds old and feeble because he is old and feeble. This is the guy before Ben Bernanke. All right, this is the, the Fed chairman uh, from you know Ronald Reagan's day. That's how, how far back Greenspan goes. And he's being questioned right now on whether or not the U.S. will default on its debt. And here's his answer. Please listen to this. And uh, warning, if uh, uh, your, your, your chin is within a foot of a hard surface, um, you may want to put your hand underneath it so when your chin drops, you don't slam it into your desk or your car dashboard or what have you. Here we go. Are U.S. Treasury bonds still safe to invest in? Very much so. I think there's a... This is not an issue of credit rating. The United States can pay any debt it has because we can always print money to do that. So there is zero probability of default. 
So Eric says unbelievable. I say completely believable. This is exactly how these people think. We'll just print more money. We'll just make more money. You know what? There's billions of dollars and trillions of dollars out there that we can use and we can suck value from that money and create new money, devalue the money, and actually the debts are easier to pay off then because since we've devalued the money, the debt is cheaper. Let me put it to you this way. This is how their thinking is. If you bought a house uh, 20 years ago, let's say 20 years ago you purchased a house. Now you had a, a 30-year mortgage on it and your first 20 years you didn't really pay that much of the balance down. But you bought the house for $50,000, and you still owe, like, let's say, $20,000 on it. That $20,000 against the house that you bought 20 years ago is a very small debt, right? Maybe you have a house payment of uh, uh, three or $400 bucks at the most, maybe, maybe $250. And that makes the house very cheap today because as the inflation worked against you in other ways, it worked for you as a debt holder. And this is where people say inflation punishes savers and rewards people that spend lots and lots of money and take risks. When you save as an inflationary economy and you get an interest rate of 1% and inflation is 3%, you lose. When you hold debt in an inflationary economy, even with an interest rate of 5%, if it's long-term debt, as the inflation outpaces the interest on the debt over time, the debt becomes devalued. So the Federal Reserve just feels we can accelerate this process anytime we want because when we print a trillion dollars, we create a trillion dollar inflationary uh, tact against the economy. This is what I said about, you know, if the whole thing collapses, how bad it's going to be in the return to gold and everything early. And I said you would hear from one of, of, of the ass clowns in charge, at least a former ass clown in charge later. This is what I was talking about. So there you go, right from the guy that used to be the Ben Bernanke, the, before the Ben Bernanke, uh, If we have any problems, we'll just print more money. Now, please tell me where that's ever worked. Where a country was going broke and they just fired up the presses and printed and printed and printed and it ever worked out. Uh, it didn't work for Weimar, Germany. It didn't work real good for Zimbabwe. I have a $10 million, $10 million Zimbabwe note. 10 million bucks. You know what it bought uh, right before it finally just, they just gave up and, and quit doing it? It bought you a can of Coke. Um, printing money is not a solution to not having money. It just doesn't work forever. Sooner or later, the jig is up, so to speak. And uh, I think that we're rapidly approaching that point again. I'm, I'm timelining this now. I said earlier, in, you know, earlier, but going back three years ago, I wasn't sure when, but there would be this false recovery. I'm now timelining this to 2013, 2014, to the big implosion. And I think that's about all we have left before the big implosion comes. And I think we do at that time move to a rebasing based on gold. I do believe it will be the municipal defaults that cause it. There, I've said it again. Um, side note, real quick here. One of my other predictions has come to pass. Uh, prior to the election of Barack Obama, about a month before the election uh, of Barack Obama, I went on record with this prediction then uh, for the very first time. And up until uh, like this weekend, everybody thought I was crazy. I said that what would happen is that this guy would be a disaster. He would be an absolute disaster. That's not the part that anybody thinks I'm crazy about or ever did. And that they would be wide open for a Republican challenger in, uh, in 2012. And that the current Republican field was, did not have anybody in it of all the people people were talking about. Well, I don't care if it's, you know, uh, Malkin or, or Palin or uh, Pawlenty, who just dropped out, or uh, Mitt Romney, or any any of the usual suspects. 
in the Republican Party were too weak to beat Obama, even in a weakened state. That uh, they just didn't have the charisma, they didn't have the track record, they didn't have the genuine love uh, of both sides. To win as a Republican in 2012, you have to have mainstream Republicans like you, and you have to have the Tea Party type Republicans like you. You got to have both because if either side sits home, there's enough people that believe in socialism in this country today that Barack Obama, just on the incumbent advantage, will win re-election no matter how bad things are. So that left the field wide open for a charismatic person that could appeal to both sides. And if there was a sleazy, Teflon-coated douchebag currently governing my state at the time named Rick Perry, and that Rick Perry would come into the election in 2012 if Obama was defeatable and he would be your next president. I said this before Obama was president. And who announced candidacy? Finally, Rick Perry. Now let me tell you how smart this guy is. Do you know why he just announced his candidacy? Everybody else is building momentum and fundraising and yada yada because he's got millions and millions and millions of dollars available to him. So he doesn't need time for fundraising. I can make a few phone calls, a few connections, and plenty of money comes in to launch the financial side of the campaign. People have started tearing each other down inside the Republican Party right up till today. And they started months and months ago. Palin's at Romney, Romney's at Palin, back and forth, and they're all attacking each other. He stayed out of it. He didn't take any of the damage. He didn't get any of the baggage that went along with that of all this infighting and the first debates and everything else. He comes in right at the end, so he misses all of that. This guy has been endorsed by Sarah Palin. Right? He should have been. This guy is a sleaze. Let me tell you a few things about this man who's your next president. Rick Perry had a chief of staff who quit. He quit and he immediately went and took a really high-paying position with a company we've all heard of. That company is Merck Pharmaceuticals. Merck Pharmaceuticals is the sole manufacturer of the Gardasil vaccine. And this is a vaccine that provides some resistance to four of the dozens of, of uh, HPV viruses that may or may not be a cause of cervical cancer and are only acquired through sexual activity. So HPV is a sexually transmitted disease that may, may, and that's a very important word, may, uh, be a, a causal factor in cervical cancer, but there are dozens of forms of it, and this vaccine only covers four. Please remember that. The vaccine at the time was brand new. Brand new, very limited long-term testing. Rick Perry signed, and to that point, he had been governor of the state for two terms, all right, and a little bit more, all right? You got to think about that. That's, that's, that's 12 years. This is the guy that stepped in after Bush left as governor, right? He was right there, and he's been there ever since. He's been there a long time. First executive order he ever signs. A few weeks after his chief of staff goes to work for Merck as a lobbyist, you know what it was for? An executive order circumventing the state's legislature to require all girls in school age 14 or older to receive the Gardasil vaccine. You want to go to school? You're going to get the Gardasil vaccine at 14. No choice. When questioned as to why he did it, he said, and I quote, this is, this is verbatim, because if the state requires it, the insurance companies have to pay for it. And that means that every girl will be able to get the vaccine. I mean, just the, and you know what? The people went nuts. They called their legislators. They rescinded his executive order, but the guy walked right through it, and it really never stuck to him. And most people in Texas, even though it was bad enough that the people had to overturn the executive order, they don't even know about it. They don't even talk about it. They don't even care. This is also the guy whose plan to save our, our state 
was to sell our toll roads to a Spanish company. So instead of having North Texas Tollway Association run the toll roads, we sell our, our, our infrastructure to Spain. Nice, huh? Um, and, you know, one more thing about this sleazeball before I let it go. Perry's a big fan of something called the Trans-Texas Corridor. This is a highway that will run from Mexico's border to the Oklahoma border, oh, somewhere along the way that I-35 runs today, but not quite, which would save a lot of problems if they just turned 35 into this. But no, that's not what they're going to do. A new route that sort of parallels I-35. There's a lot of New World Order crap around this and the North American Union crap about this and how this thing enables that, and you can let that go one way or another. That's not what's important to me. What's important to me is this is going to be a four-lane highway, two lanes on each side, typical interstate highway, and a railroad track running next to it, and a bunch of places for people to stop, like rest stops and things like that. Okay? Do you know how wide of a path they're going to take for a four-lane highway and a railroad track? A mile wide. One mile from Texas, the Texas border with Mexico, to the Texas border with Oklahoma. They're going to take a mile-wide strip. There are tens of thousands of landowners who in this project will have their land seized with eminent domain. That's Rick Perry. Oh, and just one more for you so I can kick this clown a little bit before he becomes our next president. And he's going to be our next president. That's, that's what I'm seeing now. Barring some miracle from the Obama administration that wins him re-election, he's, he's your next president. Um, down on the last time we had an election here, er, there in Texas, I forget I moved sometimes. Uh, Perry was on 570 KLIF, and he was asked by the DJ about uh, the Kinky Friedman plan to stop illegal immigration at the time. And this was about six months before the election, and, and Friedman was like pulling out 1% or something like that as an independent. And it didn't look like there was any way he was going to have any impact on the election whatsoever. And, and the guy said, well, Kinky Friedman says that if he becomes governor of the state of Texas, he will immediately send additional National Guard troops down to the border and secure the damn border. And Perry said that anybody that would say that is just practicing hyperbole, and it's just nonsense, and it's just not the state's responsibility to defend the border, and it's just it's just it's just it's just dumb, basically. You know that, that, that anybody that would say that is not doing nothing. His exact words: anybody that would say that is doing nothing but pandering. Three weeks before the election, Friedman's now polling at like 10%, and this Carol Strayhorn chick is polling at like 20%, and you got a Democrat in there too, and Perry's needing, you know, at least 33% of the vote here to kind of carry the day, and he's scared, and he runs a commercial, and the, the, he's in his bomber leather jacket, He's got his perfect hair. He's standing, and the wind's kind of moving his hair, but not messing it up. He's got his hands in his pocket. He's like, you can tell he's down by the Rio Grande somewhere, like out in Big Bend Park. And it says, and Texas Governor Rick Perry sent the National Guard to our borders to defend them against illegal immigration. And then Perry says at the end, if Washington won't defend our borders, Texas will. Now, this is the same man, five months apart, pandering in his own words because he was afraid of losing the election to a nut job named Kiki Friedman. Right. So when you are told by mainstream media and the right-wing media that this is our savior, you got the truth from me first. And it, I'll tell you what, saying somebody's better than Barack Obama for the country doesn't mean a lot. He is better for the country than Barack Obama. I'll grant you that. But again, 
All I feel like, and this is what's been going on uh, for, for, for decades now, some candidates, they get in the truck, and that's the president, he's driving the truck that is the you know, United States of America, and they head 90 degrees directly at the cliff. And they're driving the, the truck 80 miles an hour and straight at the cliff. You get another guy in there, he turns to about 70 degrees instead of 90 degrees, so he's going on a little bit of an angle, and he cuts the speed back to about 60. Um, Rick Perry may look like he's doing that and may actually speed the truck up toward the cliff in some ways. And in some other ways, he may slow it down. Business-wise, he's got a better head than anybody in the Obama administration, but overall, he's a sleazy, Teflon-coated politician. And one more time, he is the next president of the United States. He would not have entered the election if his campaign uh, committee had not done the analysis with the belief that he could beat Obama. He will win the Republican nomination, barring some kind of scandal, barring something that comes out that's unforeseen, barring something that, you know, SS Titanics him. Anything else, he has the nomination, and then the presidential election is his to lose. And I'm sorry to tell you, it will not be the glory that's going to be promised to you by Sean Hannity uh, and Rush Limbaugh and everybody else. He's not who people think he is. I'm sorry to tell you the truth, but that's reality. I got a lot of questions about him this weekend over his announcement. Uh, but there you go. There's the truth on that matter. A little more on the U.K. riots. This comes from Shrank Sharp Jr. He has a friend that uh, sent this to him. This is a firsthand witness of the U.K. riots. Says, ordinary folks here are utterly and hopelessly defenseless in the face of mob violence. Our doltish public policy of never fighting back under any circumstances that's so inexorably ingrained into the British mind is currently serving us poorly. Even Leos are scared to death of any kind of aggressive act of policing. These excellent men and women are de denigrated, even prosecuted when they do, and murdered when they don't. Mob violence has already spread into the southeast si outside of London the west of the country, the north of the Midlands. Parliament meets in an extraordinary, quote, special, unquote, session today. I look forward to hearing at least a few good members say out loud that it's now time to rearm our police and allow citizens to arm themselves and to stop punishing people for fighting back or for merely trying to keep from being murdered. Of course, I'm not holding my breath. I understand our politicians are all safe and sound. Comment, it's obvious to me that as a national economics continue to deteriorate throughout a debt-ridden Western civilization. We'll see more such mass rioting and mob violence, particularly since, at least in the UK, so little risk attacks attaches to participating. Uh, and then there's a quote here at the end from Pope Julius III. Learn, my son, and how little wisdom the world is governed. Oh, learn, my son, with how little wisdom the world is governed. And I think there's a big one there. I never heard that quote before. I, I like that one. Learn, my son, with how little wisdom the world is governed. And, and that's what we're seeing is our leaders are either malicious or incompetent and or both. So there's more about what's going on in London. And you will see riots like this in the United States eventually. You will not see them with the duration uh, and assertiveness that you do in the U.K. because our people are armed. You know what shut down the L.A. riots? It wasn't the police department. It was Koreans with SKSs. Right, Koreans said, you know what, I, I've had enough of my windows and my, my dry, uh, dry cleaner broken. I, I'm done. I'm done. If you want to come here, I'm on the roof, and I'm going to start picking people off. That's what shut down the L.A. riots. And we don't have that in London. We don't have that in much of Europe. I think that you're going to see the, the streets and the cities in Europe burning 
literally burning in a breakdown that will be far worse than anything that happens in the United States. Uh, I have real, real concerns about that long term. But I want you to notice one other thing about this. Where's all this violence? Are these people hungry and running out and stealing from farmers? No, because a farmer, even in England, a farmer is still likely to have a shotgun. All right, out in the countryside, they they can still own shotguns and some other things. They're doing this in the cities. This is this is my concern with some urban areas. Um, next question. This comes from Eric. Eric says uh, in, in Arizona, what is the longest amount of time one can store flour under what ideal conditions? I've begun stockpiling wheat berries for a long term storage, but I'd like to know if I can store processed flour for five to ten years or more. I've taken advantage of some SB discounts over on Stephen Harris's site, including bread from gasoline video. I found his free lecture on preparedness wherein at one point he suggests not to store wheat in grain form, but rather to store flour from a local market or Costco. He contests that the cost, time, and energy to produce flour from whole grain versus purchasing pre-processed flour makes store-bought flour a much better value. He glosses over the issue of storage life, however, and simply suggests putting flour in an 18-gallon storage bin and sealing it with caulk for long-term storage. No mention of removing oxygen. I really enjoy your show and respect your perspective, which I've discovered closely mirrors my own. Regards, Eric from Arizona. Eric, here's how I feel about that. Stephen is right and Stephen is wrong. If you are preparing for disasters in the neighborhood of a 30-day duration, his concept on family preparedness is spot-on, flipping beautiful. Um, I don't personally think white flour is a great food long-term nutritionally. Now, his thing is during a disaster, store some multivitamins and eat those with your white bread and you'll be fine. And he's absolutely correct. So just on the wheat thing alone, wheat berries will store for 20 years or more. Honestly, wheat berries will store longer, stored in an airtight, uh, oxygen-deprived, dark environment for longer than human beings generally live. So from a long-term storage, set it and forget it, and always there standpoint, nothing beats a whole wheat, hard wheat, you know, winter wheat berry uh, in mylar uh, inside a bucket uh, with oxygen absorbers. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to beat. Your, your direct question of how long can we store flour? Generally speaking, if you take flour, put it in mylar, use O2 absorbers, button it up tight, um, you're going to look at a neighborhood of five years with no problems, and it will last longer, but you start to get to a point where flour is so flipping cheap, at that point you need to be rotating your stock. Now, if you use a lot of flour, this is... This is a very, very easy thing to do and follow Stephen's protocols with. If you Again, if you use white flour in your daily cooking or weekly cooking, you store up a few buckets of it. Uh, number them, you know, one, two, three, four. Put the date on them. And whenever you need flour, go to your, your, your oldest bucket and take flour from it and seal it back up. And if you use flour in any regularity, if you would go through five gallons or more of flour in a year, then you don't have anything to worry about. You store all the white flour you want. Uh, you know, easily you could store enough to last five years and just replace it as it comes. And it is cheap. And it's so cheap that on some level, Stephen's philosophy is completely spot on that if you just threw it away at five years and replaced it, it still would be cheap. You know, assuming you didn't need it, or if you donated it at five years and bought some more. I mean, filling up, you know, 25 uh, gallons, five, five gallon buckets of white flour, really, really cheap to do. I mean, we're talking maybe a, I, I'm not going to say because I'm not exactly sure, but it, it's not going to send anybody back too much to make it prohibitive. And it's a lot of nutrition, a lot of value. To use it though, you need salt, you need sugar, and you need some other things to make bread out of it. So you got to make sure you store those as well. Whereas if I store wheat, 
I can take wheat berries just as they are. I can put them in hot water and let them soak till they're soft, and I have nutrition I can consume right there. Right? And it actually tastes pretty good. And I can take a commodity like honey, which stores damn near forever with no nothing other than being in a sealed container, and drizzle a little honey on there, and I've got nutrition, I've got calories, I've got good taste, I've got all kinds of good things going. So it's it's really based on what you eat every day and how you want to do this. But about five years is what I would plan for this. If you told me you could get 10 years out of it, I wouldn't doubt you, but I'd say it's too cheap to risk if you're going to you know, bet your life on this someday. So Stephen and I on preparedness agree about 95%. And then there's 5% because my, I think my horizon, at least in, in where he's gone thinking about it so far, is longer. His long horizon is, well, I'm going to have energy. Well, not everybody was an engineer for Chrysler and can whip up all this cool stuff that he does and has all this energy sitting around his house. That where he, you know, Steven's a guy that if you sent him out in the middle of a junkyard, you'd come back in a day and he'd have like two wood gasifiers and a, one making hydrogen and another thing making biogas and all. And that's great if you're that guy. And I, you know, I want to learn more about that. I want to be able to do more about that. But when I look at preparedness, My philosophy, you know, I would say be prepared for 60 days first. My philosophy and his are 100% together in that first 60 days. The long duration concept, though, that's where I believe whole grains, uh, whole rice, things like that are, are, are much better suited for this. And then there's this other thing. I believe that if you want to have a diet that includes things like wheat in it on a daily basis, Whole grains are so much better for you nutritionally, dietary-wise. I mean, I'm not even just talking about the nutrition value. So the white flour and multivitamin, no, it doesn't work with me. And I'll tell you why. It's about the fiber, and it's about the insulin response. One of the reasons we're so fat in America today, in addition to the fact that we eat a lot more than we used to, is the, the, the foods that we're eating are so refined, they create a greater and faster insulin response. And when you have insulin peaks in the body, insulin literally is uh, the, the, the X factor that says to the body, take this extra energy, convert it to fat, and store it. It's, it's the mechanism where that happens, uh, where glycogen is the exact opposite. It is the one that says take the fat, burn it, use it, and, and expel the waste. So... Whatever we can do to keep that, 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 that system more in balance is better, and you will get a less of an insulin spike when you're eating whole grains than when you're eating over refined flour. So if we're going to practice eat what we store and store what we eat, then my belief is that we need to focus on whole grains, not just you know for some of the, you know, the reasons that Stephen kind of myth kills in his thing. Like he says, well, they say ants won't even eat white flour. Hey, shut up. It's a good thing. You don't want your food eaten up by weevils and ants and insects. Well, weevils will get into white flour and eat it. So that's another thing you need to be careful of. And that's one thing I almost left out here. It really makes a lot of sense. If you're going um, to store white flour to freeze it for a couple days before you enact a full long-term storage. And that generally will get rid of anything that might be in there that's, that's not supposed to be in there. But generally speaking, good flour, if you seal it up. And I saw some retard when I was looking at, for some other people's opinions on this on Yahoo, say things like, even in an airtight sealed container, eventually bugs can get in there. They're pretty smart. No, they're not smart, you retard. They're bugs. You know how they get in there? They were in there before you put it into the container. If you have a hard, airtight, sealed container, bugs can't go through it. If air can't get through it, a weevil can't get through it. So if you open it up and there's weevils in there, there were weevil eggs in there 
before you put it inside. So if you ever hear that, that's the case. Best thing to do for you on that one. Let's go ahead and take another one. Uh, next question. Richard says, do you have plans on using ponds on your property? And do you think that it's something that can be done in a suburban backyard without 5,000 permits? I understand you have to call before you dig. The system in this video looks like a way to really have a cool-looking outdoor aquaponics system. It would be really more, uh, we would call it aquaculture system and aquaponics. Great video. I won't play it for you. I'll link to it, though, so you can take a look at it. It is a cool video. Uh, the answer is yes. Um, I have a, a friend named Sean coming up uh, this weekend, and he's going to be digging some hugaculture beds for me. And I've also got an area I want him to try to dig a pond for me, and we'll see how that goes. Hopefully it'll work pretty well. Uh, it's a pretty sizable pond. I'm going to order the pond liner and underlayment after we dig it when I actually know the final dimensions. But I think ponds belong everywhere you can put one legally. Whether or not you can do it without 5,000 permits, I can answer that for you. Absolutely yes. If it's legal to do a pond in any way, circumstance at all in your community, you can do it without 5,000 permits. But you probably can't do it without one. And that's going to be the big thing. Can you get the one? And it might be one or two depending on your municipality and, and what's involved. And is there zoning variances and there are utility easements and all other types of things. If it's a major excavation, I think that if you're going to go out to um, like Home Depot or something like that and get a preformed 250-gallon pond or something like that and put it in, in most areas you can probably just do it. And it's better to ask for, for forgiveness than permission, especially in a backyard. I see little ponds like that put in everywhere. But a larger pond, you're probably going to need some type of a permit, maybe something akin to the type of permit you would need during uh, the installation of a swimming pool. Some ordinances might include there has to be a fence around it. Uh, some ordinances are stupid. There's Most places, you have to have a fence around your pool. So if you have a fenced-in backyard and your pool's in your backyard, it's fenced in. That would make sense. Some towns are so stupid in their ordinances that you literally have to have a second fence And it's based on how far away from the edge of the pool it is. So you really have like a, like a six foot typical privacy fence around your home. Pools in the middle of the yard, not good enough. You'd have to have a secondary fence around the pool. It all depends on your local municipality. Let me talk a little bit about, I should do a pawn show. Just a complete show. So maybe I'll save some of this that I had planned to say since we're long already today. But, um, Ponds do so much for the environment where you're at. They bring in predators. They they, they bring in uh, all types of uh, predators. You're looking at dragonflies. You're looking at uh, uh, frogs and toads and things like that. They increase the humidity. They cre they create a, a sense of serenity. Um, I'm not only going to put this big pond in. I'm actually thinking they have these uh, little tubs, like a hundred gallons at Tractor Supply. Uh, really, really rig rigid, uh, like they're like uh, basically like a, a a thick plastic resin stock tank is what they're designed to be. And I was realizing I could put in uh, multiple little still ponds. People say, well, if you do that, you know, don't you need pumps and filters and everything? Not necessarily. With the right plants and with things like barley straw floating on your smaller ponds, they can remain relatively clean. Uh, if you have, a, a, let's say, a battery and a little submersible pump where you can pump some of the water out of them once in a while to clean them out. Uh, as far as mosquitoes, you could just use BT dunks. They're pretty inexpensive, very, very effective, and safe for the environment. So definitely I plan on bringing ponds in, and I think everybody should consider that too. Um, I'm going to have to skip one here today because we're really long now, but I wanted to get a couple other things out for you. Uh, this one is really cool. I mean, absolutely really cool. And it's called The Most Dangerous Recipe, which everyone should have. And uh, it comes from Richard. Enjoy the five-minute chocolate cake for one person. How neat. You're going to want to come back and write the instructions down because I'm not going to publish them online. You're going to have to get them by writing them down. Uh, here we go. 
The five-minute chocolate cake for one person, how neat. For nights when you can't wait to make a full cake. And there's some pictures. Five-minute chocolate mug cake. You take four tablespoons of flour, that would be white flour, four tablespoons of sugar, two tablespoons of cocoa, one egg beaten, and for you preppers out there, which most of you are, uh, one equivalent egg beaten of egg powder would work for you in this, three tablespoons of milk, and you could, of course, use milk powder, three tablespoons of oil, you should have oil in your preps, three tablespoons of chocolate chips, which are optional, but chocolate chips should be in your preps because they make a lot of things better. A small smash, a small smash, a small splash of vanilla extract, one large coffee mug that's microwave safe. Here's how you do it. Add the dry ingredients to the mug and mix well. Add the egg and mix thoroughly. Pour in the milk and oil and mix well. Uh, add the chocolate chips if you're using and vanilla extract, extract and mix again. Put your mug in the microwave and cook for three minutes. The cake will rise over the top of the mug, but don't be alarmed. Allow to cool a little and tip out into onto a plate if desired. Eat. This can serve too if you feel uh, slightly more virtuous. Uh, that, <laughs> and then here's at the end, I like this. And why is this the most dangerous cake recipe in the world? Because now we are all only five minutes away from chocolate cake at any time, day or night. But I want you to think about this. A microwave is pretty easy to run off a little generator, a little backup power system, especially when you only need it for three minutes. Um, this could easily, to me, be done uh, on a grill as well with you know indirect heat and baking. There's a lot of ways this could be cooked. So during that outage, during that time when the kids are scared, everybody's upset, everybody's miserable, what have you, imagine... Being able to, especially if you have microwave, you can run it on backup power or something like that. Um, being able to cook up a little hot, warm, good-smelling chocolate cake in three minutes or less. Pretty cool, huh? And, you know, this wouldn't be that bad for you, really, especially if you made one and split it with your significant other or split it with your kids or whatever, and everybody just had a little taste. In fact, I'd say this is a lot less bad for you than making a great big chocolate cake. Why? Because there's only so much of it. So I thought that would be a great little one for me to give you guys today. Um, I have another thing here for you guys today. It's kind of cool. And uh, it's called the Solar Grill uh, Prototype for a Greener Tomorrow. And um, this is pretty awesome. Let me. I'm going to read it to you because I think it's the only way I'm going to do it justice. Students at MIT are working on a case study for a new type of solar-powered outdoor grill based on technology from MIT professor David Wilson. This grill would collect thermal energy from the sun and store it to allow cooking times of up to 25 hours at a temperature above 450 degrees Fahrenheit. The study is being conducted at Derek Ham, Eric Uva, and Theodora Vol by Derek Ham, Eric Uva and Theodora Valdurli. I'm sorry if I got your name wrong, Theodora. All part of an entrepreneurship course called iTeams. iTeams, short for Innovation Teams, is a unique MIT course that assembles cross-disciplinary teams of students from across MIT. Man, MIT, if you're going to go to college and you can get in, there's a college to go to, by the way, folks. This is the kind of cool stuff these guys are always doing. The goal of iTeams is to teach students the process of science and technology commercialization, focusing on how to judge a technology's commercial potential. Each team has access to facility, practitioners, business mentors, and fellow students throughout the project. 
There, quote, there are a lot of solar cookers out there, end quote, says Wilson, quote, but surprisingly not many of them use a latent heat storage as an attribute to cook the food and coke, end quote. Wilson's technology uses a Frenza lens to harness the sun's energy to melt down a container of lithium nitrate. The lithium nitrate serves as a solar battery. Due to its phase change reaction, the thermal energy is able to be stored at longer periods of time and at higher temperatures. Heat is then redistributed through convection, which allows for outdoor cooking. The study is very timely because although the students are creating a new grill for American backyards, the business plan is designed to allow grills to be deployed to developing countries as an alternative source for cooking. Wilson originally came up with the idea during his time spent in Nigeria, where he noticed a large set of problems linked to the practice of cooking with firewood. These problems include reports of women being raped during their daily search for firewood. That's a, you know, when you think you have a problem, when you think you have a problem, I want you to remember that this week. When you think something's a problem, realize that in Nigeria, women go out to gather food, uh, firewood so they can cook food for the day and get raped. But that's a regular occurrence and realize your problem's not as bad as you think. Constant increase in deforestation. If you're burning all your trees, you run out of wood. And respiratory health issues due to daily inhalation of smoke in close proximities. According to the United Nations Statistics Division, 55% of households in sub-Saharan Africa are dependent on firewood. In developing countries, this solar grill would become a solution to a growing need. In the U.S. market, according to the Barbecue Industry Association, 75% of U.S. households own the barbecue grill. In 1999, and 40% own more than one. I own more than one. You should too. Why? Two is one. One is none. To respond to the demands of the American public, the proposed U.S. model would be a hybrid system of both propane and solar cooking capabilities. This would allow you to have flame-kissed meat as well as the ability to slow-rest corn from thermal convection. Currently, the technology is in prototype stage, but if all goes well, a few years, uh, you might be able to have a solar-cooked food at your next barbecue. Uh, this thing looks pretty cool. I mean, will it work as advertised is the big thing. And uh, does it mean you have to keep it while you're cooking uh, underneath you know, or out and exposed to the sun and sweat even more? I'm not sure. Uh, it may not work everywhere, but this one's cool, and I wanted to make sure that I got it out to you guys today so everybody could take a look at it. And with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up today. I hope you had a good show. A lot of interesting stuff going on out there. I had a few news items I wanted to get in that I didn't. I'll try to get them in maybe next week, but you know how that goes. They keep coming. So I might do two of these shows next week uh, just to, uh, to catch up on some of this stuff. I've got some great interviews coming for you guys this week. Uh, and just about an hour from now, I'll be interviewing Mike Gazer. I'm bringing him back on. Of course, he's my uh, financial guru of choice to talk to. Whenever something's going nuts in the economy and I want the real deal about it instead of the spin or, you know, here's the big reason I bring Mike on, guys. Mike is not selling anything. He doesn't have how to invest. He doesn't have any kind of courses. Mike does seminars for major corporations and government organizations to understand accounting practices. Uh, so he's not got a big audience here to sell to. So when Mike tells you something on my show, he is not doing it so that you'll go out and buy Mike Gazer's 12 Ways to Become a Millionaire in the Stock Market Overnight. He's telling you because he genuinely wants to share that information. So Mike Gazer will be on the show tomorrow for you guys to talk about all of this crap with the debt ceiling, uh, inflation, where to put your money right now, how to safeguard it as best you can. And we'll probably talk a little about prepping too because Mike, though uh, very well off financially and having his little estate up there in Connecticut, as I tease him with sometimes, is actually a hell of a prepper with uh, backup redundancy generators and things like that. So we'll have Mike, financial luminary and prepper, on tomorrow. 
And Tuesday, I'm interviewing Stephen Harris. I have a ton of questions by you guys for Stephen. Uh, I need to actually, as soon as I'm done with Mike, I need to get those compiled into a document and over to Stephen so he can review them. I just hadn't done that yet. Um, he's probably going to be pissed off, but whatever. Um, but Stephen Harris is coming back on to answer all the questions you guys sent in about developing your own energy and, uh, and using your own alternative energy systems. And then I have one more really cool one this week. guy you've never heard of named Tom Spargo, who is built something called a rain saucer, which is a rain harvesting technology that can be set up uh, adjacent to your house like a typical rain barrel, but can also be used in remote locations like, let's say, a remote part of a garden for irrigation purposes or a remote area for drinking water. Uh, pretty cool technology. I'll have him on, so he'll be on, I'll be interviewing him Wednesday, so he'll be on Thursday. And then Friday we'll do our listener call show, so that's the next week lined up. Cool stuff. Trying to keep things like that coming for you, keep it different. I mean, we're up to episode 724 today, so there's always going to be some stuff that gets repeated. But I try to keep the, new, the show new and fresh, and every day more stuff coming to help you do what? Live that better life. And with that, this has been Jack Spirgo with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better Show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. You don't have to live the way it's empty. Make your own way. Others will follow. Someday we'll realize our children just can't pay Cause nobody up there cares
Revolution. Here. 